if you've never heard what becomes of the brokenhearted, then you never had to grow up with an oldie station, you know, driving around with your mom in the van. Welcome to the Echo Spire Song Destruct podcast, where we reverse engineer the most influential songs in history. This is a tightly formatted show where we dive into the mechanics of songwriting and production, deconstructing chord structure, song architecture, production design, and arrangements. We rate and review the effectiveness of these song elements and evaluate what we can learn from them so that we can become better songwriters and designers. Today's show is titled, What Becomes of the Brokenhearted versus if you leave and the theme today is uh what what am i calling the theme if you don't know i don't know i was trying to find a connection between the two songs i know of none let me challenge you this is called the truck driver's gear change have you ever heard of it ryan this is the first time i am hearing of this okay so you haven't heard of it i hadn't heard of it either until i Mm. started to do a little bit of research for this episode but it references key changes which both of these songs have, which we will get into in depth. But the reason why it's called a truck driver's gear change is similar to when you change gears from first to second gear or fourth to fifth gear, you hear Mm -hmm. the RPMs go up on the engine. And that's sort of similar to what happens with a key change. If you're going up or down, it kind of feels like you're changing gears and increasing the RPMs of the emotion. Interesting. Both of these songs cleverly implement gear changes regularly throughout the song there's probably thousands of pop songs that use gear changes but the only two i can think of that use them throughout the song repetitively are these two which is the reason why i chose them so let me go into a little bit of brief background on uh, the jimmy ruffin tune a little bit of history jimmy ruffin was a brother i think he was the younger brother maybe the older brother of the lead singer of temptations temptations yep best known for my girl and he convinced one of the writers, there was basically three writers, a couple guys credited with the music, one guy credited with the lyrics. So we have William Weatherspoon and Paul Reiser credited with music, James Dean, not the James Dean, but a James Dean credited with writing the lyrics. But he convinced the three of them to give him the tune. I don't think he had had anything close to a hit, but it went up to number seven, did not reach gold status, which is 500,000 records sold. So as influential as this song is, and I'd be hard-pressed to find one person who's never heard this song. It did not reach gold status. What uh, What year? 1966, summer. In researching this, I was aware that this song might have a minor to major chord change. Now, if you're listening to last week's episode, you, you might have heard me state that Love and Spoonful were the first to do a minor to major chord sequence, which, which came out July 1966. This song came out June 1966. And it's been said to have a minor to major chord sequence. I will stand by my position that it does not. And I'll go into some of the mechanics of the chord or the music theory surrounding this. But if you were to look up 
sheet music on this song, they would state that it's a minor to major. I don't think it is. I think it's a very conventional chord sequence, but the bass note is plucked that would make it appear to be a minor to major. In any case, I'll get into that in just a minute. Because this did not go gold, I'm just kind of wondering what really constitutes whether a song has influence or not. Because more people have probably heard this song than the average song that has 20 million digital copies sold. So what is influence? Is it how many people have bought it? How many people have heard it? How do you measure these things? In any case, while I went down that road, I got onto some research about how today a stream, this is just interesting knowledge, a stream is worth about half a penny. Now that has to be a paid stream. In other words, if you're listening to Spotify or Apple Music or some other kind of service that allows you to stream for free with ad supported, that actually does not count towards album sales or digital copies sold. But if it is a paid stream and you subscribe to the service, then 150 streams equals one digital song purchase and an album is considered 10 times that, 1,500 streams. But the artist always gets paid, whether it's ad-supported or you pay a monthly subscription. They always get half a penny per stream. And again, that's not the artist, but that's the music company. Who knows what the artist is? But a little bit of interesting information, just wanted to share it with the audience. Let's talk about If You Leave for a second before we start to get into some of the nitty-gritty details. So If You Leave comes out 20 years later. I'm glad we're doing this one because looking into it, looking at the chords, looking at the arrangement, whole new appreciation for it it's amazing it's it's almost uh dare i say flawless glad you say that because i'm going to get into this one pretty heavy this is going to be the most intensive analysis i think i'll ever have to do on any song we ever go over so you're going to peak on episode three i'm pushing myself with this one <laughs> so if you leave that charts at number four it was directly written for the soundtrack of pretty in pink in fact they had already been chosen to have mm. a song participate in the soundtrack of Pretty in Pink. Typical coming-of-age teen flick, very popular. It was kind of on the heels of Breakfast Club and several other John Hughes flicks. They had already been chosen to put their song into the flick, but last second, given about two days of notice on this, John Hughes said, well, the, the kids were dancing in this scene to a particular beat per minute, and your song doesn't fit, so you have to write a new song. Now, I don't know why they didn't just huh. slow down whatever song they intended to use and slow it down to the BPM or speed it up to a BPM, but they right. said, well, we're going to have to write another song. Well, guess what? They write huh. and record If You Leave <laughs> in 24 hours. The biggest hit they ever had, right? If you listen to this song critically, there's a lot going on. It, it's, a, it's a work of art. Right. And... Uh, I'll, I'll be willing to defend that, and hopefully I can put it across in this episode. Another interesting way to see how much this influenced kids, it was largely a hit due to the movie it was paired with. It did go right. gold. The actual movie soundtrack went gold. The single itself did not, but you can pretty much say it was on the back of this single. Pretty in Pink was also a big song by the Psychedelic Furs. That was included on the album. But people bought this album for two songs, and the, the big one they bought it for was If You Leave. Breakfast Club 1985 went gold. Lost Boys 1987 went gold. But Footloose destroyed them all. Nine times platinum. Oh, Kenny Loggins. <laughs> so that blows them all out of the water. And for good reason, Footloose has probably a good five or six 
big song. Footloose is, I think, 1983. So that's the reason why Breakfast Club, Lost Boys, Pretty in Pink, and many other albums, including Bat Dance with Batman uh, Prince's album. Well, the- that's the reason yeah. why they all came out. It was because Footloose was such an instant success, and it continues to be a success today. It'll probably continue to sell millions of digital copies for the next hundred years as people rediscover it. So what becomes of the brokenhearted? Let's just talk mm-hmm. real quick about the foundation. Here's the sequence. We have a typical verse chorus, then a verse, verse chorus, then a verse chorus. So they, they get a little creative by throwing in two verses in the middle and only one verse at the front and the beginning. I think that's, uh, I don't, I wouldn't downplay that. I think that's more creative than not. I, I don't see that very often. But to your point last week, how much does it add? Yeah. And I would argue that sometimes it adds a lot. I'd say this time it was interesting, but does it add anything to the song? Well, this is why I think it does. Normally it's verse one, verse two, chorus one. The second time around it's typically only one verse and then get back to the chorus quicker the second time. And this turns that on its head. And I think there's a reason for it. Well, sometimes you're not ready to go back to a chorus the second time. So you throw in a instrumental or solo or attack on just even a little tiny thing on the third verse in order to buy yourself some time. But in this case, I like it because, you know, as far as radio, getting to the chorus as quick as possible by only doing the one verse at the beginning, and then clearly it's not ready to go back to the Mm. second chorus. You made me a believer. You're right. uh, I thought it was clever. It's not that it's particularly interesting. It's that it works. It feels right, you know, with it with the right amount of breathing. It just it was it would have been too rushed to go to another chorus. Even though I think music's being produced by probably more intelligent musicians today for whatever mm-hmm. reason. And maybe it's because they can't, maybe because it's considered non-conventional and people won't buy the song if it's if it doesn't feel conventional. So maybe they refrain from doing interesting tidbits like this, but sometimes it does feel right to go with two verses or one verse or a chorus, two choruses back to back instead of one chorus or what whatever the component structure should be. Right. I don't feel like they put that much thought and effort into it. So before we move on to the chord structure, which ultimately influences the point you're making, the reason why it probably feels like it's not ready to go back to the chorus is that we're almost, we're very close to playing the same box on the verse and the chorus. They just move the box up one step. And I'll get to the box chords in a second, but I love how they, in the verse, are on a first person perspective. Basically the guy is lamenting whatever he's lost. But when it goes to the chorus, it steps up its game and becomes existentialist. What becomes of the brokenhearted? Yeah, it's more philosophical and more generalized. So let's talk about the chords. The verse is G, B minor, E minor, C. A very typical box. When they go to the chorus, they move that up to A. So from G, it goes to A. Moving the box up one full step. And we're going A, C sharp minor. I love it. F sharp, F sharp minor, D. Pretty conventional other than the key change. In the intro of the song, which is also something that they use in the verse from time to time, they use this chord sequence, G, E diminished, C7. And if you go back and listen to the song on the intro, you'll hear how kind of haunting that particular chord change is. It accompanies the doo-wop where they go, do, do, do. Do, 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 do. What they're doing is they're reusing the same melody three times in a row and putting it over a weird chord sequence to tie it all together. But it does heighten a sense of urgency. 
but it's used to good effect. And again, they reuse it in the verse. So it's not just a um, one fragment used in the intro. Now the chorus transition to get back to the verse. This is where we're going to have the uh, dispute with whether this is a minor to major. I'm going to give you what the sheet music that's published on the internet everywhere, what they say it is. And then I'm going to tell you what I think it is. So uh, the chorus is going A, C sharp minor, F sharp minor, D. The transition goes A, C sharp minor, C sharp major, D. That's what is published on the internet. However, what I would claim is A, F sharp minor, and then C sharp major, and then D. So the bassist is not plucking the root notes. He's moving root notes into third notes. Sure. And maybe some maybe some fifths. So you're saying that the F sharp minor is an F sharp minor with a C sharp in the bass. And if you play it on guitar, that's what it sounds like. That's what I'm going by. If, okay. If you play a song on guitar and it sounds like the way it kind of sounds on the record, that speaks more loudly than, say, if you play something on a piano. If you were to play them on, on both, I do think that it's not a minor to major. Pretty typical to see when you've got a key shift in order to return to the original key, you typically just have to find your way to the five chord, back up to that D so they can go transition back to the G, on the, to the one. And a little bit of a hack here, you know, the lesson to be learned is that you can play with the key change, just make sure it makes sense. Uh, there are songs that use key changes and it has nothing to do with what's actually occurring in the lyric. It's just someone using parlor tricks left and right. What's the differentiator in this? Is it, you're talking about because there's a lyrical shift in the uh, perspective? Correct. You're going first person to mm. existential. And on top of that, because the whole song is based on the same chord progression, they had to move it so it didn't become boring. Otherwise, if you were to play this song all in the key of G, it does not have a sense of uplift because this song is walking a, a fine line, especially if it wants to be a song, kind of a, a hopeful song, which is ultimately the note I think it, it lands on despite being so grim. Well, to get it there, they have to key change from G up to A. And then when they go from A to G, it's kind of going back into the first person narrative of being sad and lonely. What do you make of the fact that the final chorus doesn't do it? Did you notice that? They stay in G just for the final chorus. Is it a chorus though? Because it's more of an outro to me. Yeah, it's a chorus. They were obvious about doing it for some reason, for some setting the tone on the final chorus. Right. Just because the song never had to go up to A. You know, it could have stayed in G. And I almost think that they did. The A thing is actually a good lesson to be learned because how many times do you write a song where the first chord of your verse is a major chord? And um, the first chord mm. of your chorus is the same exact chord. And it, work works all the time but this the, i think the lesson to be learned is just try it one key up who knows it might work and then the only challenge is getting back in this case it yeah it goes up and transitions back and then it goes up and then back again and then the final course is just all in g yeah yeah you're impressing me let's talk about the chords on if you leave not sure if you studied hard enough to keep up with this one this one is taking everything we just spoke about to the next level. So right. the verse, it's got a little variation to it, but it's essentially a C, A minor, F, G. And then the little variation is C, A, a minor, E minor, F. The chorus moves up from the C to an A, which it's technically moving down. But if you listen to how the song is written, it actually feels like it's stepping up, even though it's stepping down 
uh, three half steps to A. The chorus is A and then D bass on an A. It's common that you might see a root or a, a fifth, fifth, but it's using a fourth. If you try to play that as a D, it doesn't sound right at all. And it took me oh, 30 minutes to figure this out because the sheet music online, again, was not... I, I look at various places and they all tend to copy each other, but nothing was really working. So I had to kind of figure it out on my own. And the only thing that sounds like the actual record right. is moving from an A to an A with a D in the bass. And then it moves up to E before moving back okay. to an A with a D in the bass. It's a very simple one, four, five progression, but it doesn't change into the right. four chord. It just gives you the bass note of the four chord while staying on the, the one. What's the last chord of the verse? I'm curious. G. Again, that's the reason why it feels like you're moving up when you move into the chorus, because it goes F, G, A. So you're moving up one full step, despite the fact that the key change is dropping you from C down to A. Now that we have all that out of the way, that's, that's cool. However, verse two is cooler. Because verse two moves to D. So it moves up one full step. Really? Yeah, when they're coming out of the first chorus, they get back to the verse by having it in the key of D up one step. Yep. Therefore, the chorus number two is in the key of B. So the first chorus was in the key of A. The second chorus is in the key of B. And that makes sense because they they basically kind of kept it, the structure the same, and everything moved up one full step. Right, it keeps moving up uh, proportionally. Now, the middle eight gets a little weird. Uh, it does work, but they use some weird chords. They go from G to E to A minor to F, G to E, C, D. I'm not going to talk about that too much because ultimately I, I believe that what they're doing in here, which is a saxophone solo, they're just allowing the song to breathe a little bit. What it does next is downright uh, <laughs> almost miraculous in music theory mm. because this is not perceived by the layman or even the accomplished music theorists, this is not perceived as being anything less than extremely conventional, yet they are breaking all of the conventions. It's a true truck driver's gear change. And before I get to exactly what it is, let me give you one good example of a truck driver's gear change. At the end of REM's uh, stand, mm. they move up three gear changes. So when they're singing that chorus, stand in the place where you are, they keep raising it. Every single time they finish a chorus, they go into it again and raise it one full step. So it starts on E, then goes to F sharp, then ends up on G sharp for the last chorus. So REM does it three times in a row for the last chorus. Yeah. What If You Leave is able to accomplish is when it comes out of the middle eight, it goes back into two choruses and an outro. The first chorus is in the key of A. The second chorus is in the key of B. They move it up one full step. And the outro is the verse chords in the key of C, which is what the song starts in. So just a quick recap. The first verse of the song is in the key of C. Verse two is up one step in the key of D. We go through the middle eight. We come out of it. And the, the, the first chorus out of the middle eight is key of A. The second chorus is key of B. And the outro is key of C. So they go A, B, C. Let me just quickly reference uh, at the beginning of this show, I play uh, the Space Odyssey theme. It's all in the key of C. The notes being plucked are C, G, and then goes back up to C. But then when it comes back around the second time, it goes A, B, C. So it goes root, fifth, root, and then six, seven, eight. Just talking about the numbers of the key. So one, five, yep. one, five, eight, six, seven, eight. If you leave, is doing the same thing 
where it, it goes A, B, C, but it's doing it in different key changes. I'm trying to really tie in everything he's able to accomplish with, or it's actually credited to the three of them. So I think that they wrote this fairly quickly and they all kind of came up with parts and pieces. What you ultimately end up with, if you begin to look at the notes he's singing, and if you begin to look at the lyrics he's singing, is very much a song that reminds me of primary colors. So when you learn to draw in kindergarten, you basically get a crayon box full of 16 colors or whatever it might be. Maybe it's even as little as eight. Well, in music theory, you're given eight notes and you get a lot of, uh, you get the black keys, the intervals, the half step keys. But this song, if you were to stack it up to any other popular song, again, I'm not concerned with songs that aren't popular because anyone can write something that sounds weird and doesn't sell and you know make right. an exercise out of music theory this song is attempting to do everything you can possibly do with music theory and stay relevant to the conventional listener so let's talk about the lyrics for a second because i believe that what he's accomplishing here is also very much primary color driven he's using a lot of conventions that are just songwriting 101 I touch you once, I touch you twice. I need you now like I need you yep. then. If you leave, <clears throat> I can't think of anything more conventional in pop songwriting than mentioning leaving. I won't cry. Yeah. Uh, seven years under the bridge, like time was standing still. Anytime you assign a specific number, or what you're insinuating is that you're dealing with, with something that's real. It suddenly feels like, oh, there's actually, these people were together for seven years. There's stakes. So they're... Very, specific. very specific. You always said we meet again someday. Don't look back. These are very conventional themes to be using. Jimmy Ruffin's song wins the battle of the lyrics <laughs> this week. Hey, what does become of the brokenhearted? Does anyone know what happens to him? It's like when they go into the uh, the corn in the right. Field of Dreams. Where do they go? We still don't know. Let's talk about some of the production values of what becomes of the brokenhearted. They got a little bit of horns, xylophones in the background, the soaring strings. They got piano clacking, sort of like a percussive instrument. They got a Phil Spector type of uh, wall of sound going on. Some interesting notes being uh, sung by the background singers. They yep. attempted to sound like Phil Spector, who at the time, they were maybe a year behind um, uh, Unchained Love Song. Unchained Melody? Unchained Melody. <laughs> Unchained love song. No, but, but somebody should write Unchained Love Song. <laughs> so, you know, that's a big production, which interesting fact, um, Unchained Melody, even though it sounds like a Phil Spector song, and I think it, his name is on it, he did not produce it. Oh, I didn't know that. The Righteous what? Brothers produced it themselves, and uh, Phil Spector's name ended up on it. And uh, what's going on with the production of If You Leave, we got strings that are playing some interesting notes. They're, they're not moving conventionally across the chord structure in the same way that the bass is plucking a fourth instead of a typical root or a fifth. A lot of stuff going on with various loops in the background. Some of them are easier to pick out than others. You have everything from little staccato trumpets, 16th notes that are kind of prominent in the song, to chimes being strummed in the background on uh, uh, the first quarter note of every phrase. Bass drum quarter notes in the, in the middle eight section, which kind of help to propel the song along as it's taking a breath. One thing I do want to go through is the fact that the chorus is able to really lift itself up and pull itself out of the verse by adding eighth notes right. on the keys. So whereas the verse is sort of a donch, bonch, 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 the chorus right. 
he gets right. into it. Dun, 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 I wouldn't even put this under the guise of music theory. This is probably something that isn't adequately labeled, but I would call it just understanding how to use music to produce a feeling. And some people are really good at it. And I don't know if it can be taught. If you if you don't instinctively or natively understand it, I don't think you can get it. It's pretty incredible that these guys really didn't have any other hits. So you know the outro. The outro of If You Leave has the kind of droning on, oh, oh, oh. I like those. Yeah, I, I think it, it works quite well. Everybody and their mother is throwing O's into pop songs now mm-hmm. and country songs. For a while, I was wondering, like, where did this start? Uh, I feel like maybe the beginning of that was with the uh, success of Arcade Fire. Hmm. Everything was O's in the background. And then uh, so Coldplay started doing it. And eventually, it transitioned into country and every everything still. Mm-hmm. For 10 plus years, there's a lot of O's yep. going on. And they're usually so obviously just manipulative, manipulative and, and, and trendy. And for the sake of uh, catchiness, they think, but it, it, it bothers, I don't know, people like me. The, in this case, I love the O's and the outro of this song because yeah. it's just natural. It just fits right in. It's got to be organic. So much of today's music is produced by like a random algorithm. At least that's what it feels like. Right. Yeah. Those notes, if you repeat those three notes on all the different chord changes, it's three, two, one, five, four, three, seven, six, five. At the end, when he hits that last big high note, and this comes back to my kind of primary colors, learning to draw with eight crayons, he's kind of walking his way through all the different notes of the key. And then, of course, he ends up on the root note, the octave. And hits that last high mm-hmm. note, which is just a G. It's nothing particularly high, but it feels high. And it feels high because he just walked you through the entire scale backwards. Three, two, one, five, four, three, seven, six, five, eight. He's escalating mm-hmm. it. And again, whether or not you realize the music theory going on, your ear and your heart or whatever it is that responds to emotions is being manipulated in a good way by what he's accomplishing with walking your brain through all those notes. Again, I think this song could be studied um, ruthlessly, and you might be able to take even more away from it than I've been able to uh, kind of put on the table tonight. Going back to Broken Hearted, I believe what, what makes it work, kind of the mix, what's able to stand out is his vocal delivery. I mean, as much as I love the chords and everything else, that vocal delivery is classic. Yeah, it's classic. Yep. Is it the, um, is it the greatest Motown song? Uh, gosh, I, it's hard to call it. Because so many Motown songs, especially from this kind of two-year period, from maybe 65 to 67, so many of them Mm -hmm. borrow from each other. It's a Motown sound, not just because of the production quality, but people who are writing these songs were all in the same room. They kind of borrowed, and I'll probably make that into uh, an episode, which is to show how similar some of these songs really are. They stand apart, and they are in their own right, unique, but they are heavily borrowing. In terms of a classic sounding record, this probably is the greatest. Talking about the mix of If You Leave, very unique vocal, the way he sings, kind of in that breathy voice. Yeah. Calls to mind zombies <laughs> from the 60s. Okay, yeah. Time of the season. Yes, yes, good song. Yeah, he sings in that seductive voice. I think it definitely helps sell it. I mean, if you're writing this song and you're playing it for somebody and you're not singing it in that seductive voice, you're probably missing 50% of the equation. Right. 
So just talking about some of the influences, uh, I mentioned before Unchained Melody was a big influence that came a year before on Brokenhearted. I think that another big influence to this was the darkening Motown sound that was starting in 1966, you know, Standing in the Shadows of Love, uh, When a Man Loves a Woman, a song that most people would consider to be maybe a Motown song, but it's not. It's out of, uh, what's that studio in uh, South Alabama? That was one of the... I think one of the first hits that that studio had, they're kind of a lesser known Motown sound. That was by Percy Sledge. Muscle Shoals, is that? Yeah, Muscle yeah. Shoals was the studio. When a Man Loves a Woman is definitely a big inspiration that came out probably three months before this song. I tend to think of them as brother and sister, When a Man Loves a Woman and What Becomes of the Broken Hearted. Uh, they, they both start with prepositions. What's the English term? <laughs> <laughs> but that's an interesting songwriter hack right there. Start your song with a preposition. Also, you had Pet Sounds being released uh, early 1966, which influenced the production. You know, that's the reason why uh, What Becomes of the Broken Hearted has xylophones in it, as well as some other weird oboe sounds go going on in the background, influenced heavily by Brian Wilson. Right. And I think downstream from What Becomes of the Broken Hearted, I think you can say that If You Leave was influenced by it. They're both boxes. They both move up and down using uh, truck driver gear changes or just key changes. And I think they're both very effective at using that for all it's worth. I mean, If You Leave is all about uh, changing the perspective. During the verse, it's saying, if you leave, don't leave now, please don't take my heart away. Promise me just one more night, then we'll go our separate ways. When he gets to the chorus, it's all about his his actions. I touch you once. I touch you twice. I won't let go at any price. I need you now like I need you then. You always said we'd be, still be friends someday. There's there's definitely a different narrative going on. Verse, he's needy. Chorus, it's much more like, here's what I'm going to do about it. Both of the songs make use of kind of the uh, the difference in lyrical structure for the key change. They, they marry the two. It works. So let's talk about what's going to be on next week's episode. By the way, let's let's do a quick rating of these songs just so that uh, people know where we stand. Uh, for me, what becomes of the brokenhearted? I'm just going to go across the board. I give this uh, 10 out of 10. If you leave, I give it a 10 out of 10 on production quality, lyrics, chord structure, the mix, any way you can dissect these songs, 10 out of 10 for both of them. Yeah, uh, I'm going to go 10 out of 10 on uh, What Becomes of the Brokenhearted. With the other one, just emotionally, it, it the way it appeals to me, uh, not quite as much, so I have to say 9. Okay. Well, let's talk about next week's episode. So we're going with Stand By Me, 1961, Ooh. By, by Benny King, mm -hmm. versus Lean On Me, 1972, Bill Withers. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I think you've already figured out. I'm using these two songs. One's Stand By Me. One is Lean On Me. Yeah. They're very similar in many ways, kind of not so similar in other ways. But I do believe that they are bookends for the Motown sound. And, and neither one's associated with Motown, interestingly oh. enough. All right. But Stand By Me kicked off the era. Lean On Me closed the era. I have some strong feelings about uh, one of these songs uh, in particular, but I'll save it for next time. So that does it for this show. As always, this show is in support of a new project I'm hoping to launch in 2020, a web application that enables songwriters to share their songs with other songwriters. It's a reciprocation automation engine, meaning the more you listen to other people's songs, the more they get fed your songs to listen to. So as iron sharpens iron, 
there's this process whereby the more you listen, the more you learn, the more feedback you can incorporate into your own songs, and then you can re-upload new iterations of your songs for others to hear and continue to rate and review each other. So it's just a platform that facilitates that over and over and over. And with that, we will leave you till next week. Thanks for listening.